episode 453 with Dr. Chris Gaynor, who wrote about uh, the bomb and the missile age in America. It's an audiobook. It's a fantastic audiobook. I highly recommend it. As all my guests know, I have not, at least in my opinion, I haven't, I haven't, uh, I haven't recommended a bad book yet. But it's the bomb and America's missile age. It's um, it's about. I've done this every episode. I start getting excited and talking. Please introduce yourself, sir. <laughs> okay, well, I'm uh, I'm Chris Gaynor, uh, or uh, Christopher, as it says on the uh, on the uh, book, and uh, I'm a historian uh, specializing in uh, in space exploration and aeronautics and uh i'm the uh, editor of quest the history of space flight quarterly um and uh i i'm actually based uh i'm, I'm canadian and i live up in victoria bc so uh, okay. i just have to step outside the, the door and walk about a maybe 100 yards and i and i can see the uh Mount Baker in Washington State, so I'm not that far away. <laughs> it's well, you're the you're the second Canadian guest I have. I have a regular guest, my friend Rob, who's up in Toronto. So, uh, for um, for your book, I love I love the sort of, and I say this in the best possible way, the some the simplicity of what you draw attention to, and it's not so much which missile system it's not so much how it was well it is but what you really draw attention to as a sort of a, a grand theme is um what i believe curtis lemay was very interested in and it was just it's let's break it down to the simplest pieces what is the weapon it's a fission bomb and later a fusion bomb and what do we need to do with the weapon we need to deliver it to a target everything else it's like fill in the blanks however you feel necessary but get it done and we go from uh the silver plates we go from the what ten thousand pounds of bombs go at ten thousand miles we go from these huge squadrons we go from landing at tinian and taking off and refueling and all that stuff to we go to operation paperclip v2 rockets to at its most base level it's take the bomb deliver the bomb if it's if it's and, and to just because clearly i'm scrambling this is what i do i think it's interesting how you illuminate the sort of the tendency of individuals to develop uh an institution an office uh a, a set of sales and, and business acquisitions and then that institution's uh tendency to want to maintain itself and not necessarily be the most lethal or efficient mechanism. You would think the military would have no love lost with weapon systems. They would just want the newest things. But you point out time and time again, you have these old, these pilots who are like, there's no place for a missile in the Air Force. It needs to be a pilot with wings. And and you showed that's not necessarily the case. Do you believe that that's always been the case in the military? Well, there's... Uh... There's been a lot of historical writing about that. Uh, the um, uh, one of the classic studies uh, was done early in the 20th century about changes in naval gunnery practice, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and uh, actually, uh, um, I kind of uh, knock knock that down a little bit because. The, the Air Force was, uh, you know, in the early days of the space age, the Air Force was really criticized for not immediately seeing the, uh, uh, the, the need for intercontinental ballistic missiles and, and that they didn't start until 1954. And, uh, and what I tried to do in this book is, is go back you know, to uh, basically the the end of the, the Second World War, and and look at what actually happened during that period, without sort of 
all, all the excitement and consternation that was stirred up when, you know, the Russians launched Sputnik before the uh, United States could launch its its satellites. And I, what I kind of had to do was put myself in the position of people in the Air Force back at that back at that time, and and take a look at, at what what they were dealing with. And what I found actually was that. Uh, um, uh, it, it wasn't as it, it made more sense for them to start in 1954 than it did in, in, in 1945 uh, or 46 because there was a there were a lot of uh, problems that had to be dealt with um, in terms of making America's nuclear deterrent effective. Um, the Air Force is often accused of just being a bunch of flyboys in, in love with their planes, and and, and I I looked at I looked at that, and, and I don't think it was it was quite that simple because, um, you know, at, at at the end of at the end of World War Two, you had a you had a situation where it had only a handful of bombs; they just couldn't start. Uh, grinding out nuclear weapons like, um, you know, like hot like, dogs or like something. sausages. Or sausages, <laughs> as Chris Job would say. <laughs> uh, and, and the U.S. didn't even have a, have a policy. Um, and I, I try to go over that, that policy. Uh, what, what uh, you know, the type of uh, policy that, you know, I, I think we're familiar with really didn't come into play until about 1948. So it wasn't immediately after the war, you know, because remember during the war, the Soviet Union was was uh, America's ally in that struggle. And, you know, it just, you know, uh, uh, things started to change fairly soon, but it just took took time. It didn't happen overnight. Uh, you know, the, and people argue about when, when, when the Cold War got going. Um, but, uh, it, it, you know, there's no argument that it was going by 1948, and, and some people would say even in the beginning of 1946. But anyway, anyway, it just, things just kind of took time to get into their familiar place. Um, and then, then there was uh, sort of the question of where was missile technology at the end of the war? Um, and uh, to to develop what we know today is the intercontinental ballistic missiles. That also took time. And the big issue for the first decade or more after after the war was the question of accuracy. Mm-hmm. Could uh, could a missile deliver a, a warhead to its target? Uh, accurately, and that was easier said than done. It it took a number of years to advance that, and that. But the the, the Air Force people um, also had this problem of uh, could could they even uh, uh, effectively and efficiently, shall we say, deliver nuclear weapons with bombers, where you where you had you had pilots on board, you know, when, for example, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were bombed, uh, the, the, the B, uh, B-29s had to go from Tinian, which uh, uh, was a distance from Japan, but uh, certainly uh, far short of the, the distances uh, that would be required to uh, deliver weapons, say, from the continental United States mm-hmm. through the Soviet Union. Uh, there, there's just a, a whole pile of issues there, and uh, you know I think it makes sense. You know, if 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 I if I'm having trouble figuring out how to deliver weapons with a uh, a bomber with pilots on board, uh, it's going to be even tougher to do that with a missile with uh, just with automatic devices yeah. on board. Yeah. So anyway, th- these things all took time to develop 
And then there's the other part of the argument. Well, there, it looks like the Russians started right after the war. And, uh, and uh, this was kind of in- encouraged by Soviet propaganda. Well, the truth finally came out, you know, when the uh, Soviet Union fell. Uh, but the, uh, the Soviet Union did not start uh, their work on an intercontinental ballistic missile until the spring of 1954, which is the same time the United States did. So what, what was the big, why did they both start at the same time? Uh, well, uh, the the reason the reason was the hydrogen bomb. Mm-hmm. You got to deliver it. That's right. The hydrogen bomb, your average garden variety hydrogen bomb, if you can put it that way, <laughs> uh, is uh, roughly a thousand times more powerful, uh, depending on the device, than than say the first generation mm-hmm. of atomic bombs and and people people don't realize that you know you just think any atomic bomb if you get just, it yeah you know within big boom several miles of your target you, it, it's it's going to do its thing but uh that that really wasn't the case um uh missiles weren't weren't accurate enough uh, to deliver an atomic bomb and be be confident that it would do a lot of damage. I mean, wherever it hit, it would do a lot of damage, but it might not necessarily hit where you want it to. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so all of a sudden, when you have this gigantic increase in power, that kind of takes away the um, circular error probability. You don't need it as exactly need to, don't need to be as sharp when you've got a monster megaton warhead just. Yes. Get in the general direction. So, uh, um, so I kind of take the, the the story up to the time in 1954 when when they start building these missiles and uh, uh, both sides do. And, and the story of the development of those early missiles is is quite well told by uh, by other writers. Mm-hmm. But there's. Uh, uh, there's a, a little anniversary coming up uh, this week. Uh, um, one of the uh, more interesting characters in this story on the Soviet side is a fellow named Andrei Sakharov, mm-hmm. who I'm sure you've heard of. And Andrei Sakharov, um, if he was still around, he'd be celebrating his 100th birthday in the next couple of days. Jeez, it's... Yeah, it's... it's I had never thought about that until your book why why start developing missiles at the same date or seriously developing intercontinental ballistic missiles obviously we yeah. grabbed, we grabbed paperclip scientists they grabbed paperclip scientists and yeah there was there was work being done on sure. missiles uh, but uh but uh they really had to step up their game for for icbms but so but sakharov oh yeah uh, sorry uh, the interesting thing about Sakharov is that, uh, uh, you know, uh, in ni- 1950, President Truman announced we're going to start building a, a hydrogen bomb. And th- this was, uh, he was being lobbied heavily by, by a lot of scientists. And then when the Soviets exploded their first atomic bomb in 1949, the, the pressure just uh, became almost unbearable. So anyway, he started work on it. And of course, over in the Kremlin, they they say, "Well, we've got to have one too, right?" So uh, everybody set to work on it, and the major uh, Soviet developer of the hydrogen bomb was Sakharov. So when it, sort of in, in 1953, 1954, when the, the uh, Kremlin was deciding uh, uh, about missiles, uh, like. They're going to build this hydrogen bomb, and they thought it made sense to build a missile to deliver it. Uh, and uh, and so they went to Sakharov and said, uh, "How big is your is the hydrogen bomb going to be?" And he was uh, the the uh, concept he was working on at that particular time envisioned a, a hydrogen bomb that would weigh roughly. 
roughly four tons, I believe it was, in, in that neighborhood. And uh, and so they they went to work uh, at Korolev and the, the rocket scientists in, in, in the Soviet Union went to work developing a, a rocket that could uh, deliver a bomb that big to the United States. Uh, meanwhile, in the in the United States, um, they tested a hydrogen bomb late in 1952, and it was it was a humongous monster thing. It it weighed 68 tons or something like. There was nothing on yeah. Earth that could yeah. take it anywhere, uh, you know, other than a it, you know ground transportation. It looked like a building. Uh, yeah, Ivy Mike. But, but very. It was already becoming clear that they were uh, developing a means uh, for a, um, a lightweight hydrogen bomb that would weigh only about a ton. Uh, so, so when uh, when the United States started on that, they uh, uh, they basically developed something that could deliver uh, a warhead of a of a ton. So this was. Uh, uh, this was a thing where uh, America's technological superiority kind of tripped it up a little bit because it built a smaller ICBM, uh, and it was a much better ICBM than the R-7, which the Soviets were building. But the R-7 was a much better space launch vehicle because you had this capacity to put, you know, three or four tons into yeah. orbit. And this was why the Soviets were able to get Sputnik up first, why they were able to get the first human into space, why they were able to get the first probes to the moon. All those Soviet firsts were basically because the Sakharov's guess. They couldn't shrink the bomb. The size of the hydrogen bomb was incorrect, <laughs> you know. And very soon, you know, the Soviets saw that uh, the Americans had a smaller hydrogen bomb. They they were eventually able to come around and build uh, build something like that. So uh, that's that's absolutely fascinating. It's yeah, yeah, that's but, a, yeah. incredible story. And, a, yeah. So there's going to be a little there's going to be a little bit of publicity in the next few days about Sakharov's birthday, and it, we'll talk about how how he's the father of the hydrogen bomb and how he was a great crusader for human rights, but. Um, um, he uh, it probably won't be talking about how his his impact on the space race because um, just just imagine if uh, if if, he had if the Soviets had not built such a big rocket and, and embarrassed the United States and combined with the secrecy, nobody knew what what was really going on yeah. in the Soviet Union for a number of years. For example, with uh, with President Kennedy of decided well we've got to we've got to show that we're serious about winning the space race so we're going to send people to the moon in the 1960s yeah yeah you know uh it might have been uh, uh we might have gotten to the moon by now but it might have been a lot later than 1969 that all, all sorts of what if possibilities there yeah that that there's so many of these weird contradictory flows, right? As soon as you build an atom bomb, you'd think they'd want a missile, but it's like an atom bomb, though big, is not big enough. It, it's not, we still have to be precise, and that's almost too lofty of a goal, so let's not build a missile at all. And then we shift from Ivy Mike, this massive shot cab, it looks like an, air, it looks like a, an aircraft hangar, and then we get them smaller to something maybe like uh, Castle Bravo, and it's like, oh, now that it's bigger, now it's, although we've advanced with thermonuclear weapons, we can be less advanced with missiles. So now it's a viable, it's not a pie in the sky dream. Let's actually make a missile. And then it's again, it's the whole, okay, Sakharov says four tons. So the Soviets, it's like build a bigger, build a bigger rocket. It's like they have to build such a big thing that now they have this thing where their thermonuclear technological inferiority a, a bigger bomb, four tons as opposed to one tons, actually now comes across as a technological superiority because they put up Sputnik, they put up Leica, Leica, Leica the dog. That's right. Yeah. yeah, they crashed the rover, or one of them crashed, but they put they got stuff to the moon, orbiters to the moon. It's what it's this weird parallel of like you know it's through the looking glass, black is white and white is black, and it's like 
their their fusion bombs are too big and too long. Uh, or well, now I'm just repeating myself. But yeah, it's this weird. They suck at bombs, so they appear to be better at space, and we're better at bombs, so actually we appear to be inferior, and then it's this whole, and then we're not doing stuff because Eisenhower actually sees there is no missile gap. If anything, it favors us, as you so eloquently said, but he also doesn't want to reveal the U-2, so he can't say, actually, I have images. It's just this weird chess game of, it melts your mind. Yes, <laughs> yes. You know, there, there, there are all sorts of, there are all sorts of things, you know, uh, and, and with the beginnings of Apollo, you know, you had, uh, uh, you know, when, when, uh, John F. Kennedy came to office, he was something of a skeptic about mm-hmm. space flight. But, uh, you know, Yuri Gagarin goes into space, people get upset, and then the next week he's, uh, he has the Bay of Pigs. Yeah. So, so he makes he makes this decision to go to the moon in the 1960s, and most crucially, gets support from the Congress for that, um, and uh, which is never a given. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but and some people argue uh, that if he hadn't if he if he hadn't gone to Dallas. Apollo may have happened in a different manner. Probably. You know, late in late in his administration or his life, however you want to put it, uh, Kennedy was getting a little sticker shock about Apollo, and of course he was he was uh, you know he had to think about things like the cost of Vietnam, and he had to think about social programs and the rising civil rights movement. So he was he was getting cold feet at the end. Uh, and and some people think that uh, uh, Apollo might might have been held up um, if uh, if he if say he'd lived on and, and gotten a second term. It's yeah, I, that's another thing I had never I had never learned in, until your book was I didn't realize the uh, the proximity between uh, the the time how just how soon it was between Gagarin going to space, sort of another Soviet coup like a propaganda coup, just like Sputnik and the Bay of Pigs. I mean, what if, what if the Bay of Pigs, they, they think that there was like Cuban intelligence in Miami and maybe they figured it out. Kennedy, you know, he kind of said, don't give them all the air, air. The CIA assumed Kennedy would give them any air power they needed because Eisenhower was kind of like that. But then Kennedy was like, I don't want this whole U S armada of B 29s down there. You can't give them air support. So the so or so the Cubans get bogged down on the beach. They all get executed, and it's like somehow that that embarrassment kind of turned into we need to go to the moon and do the other things by the end of this decade. Not because it is easy, but because it is hard. Right? It's that's right. That's right. It's this weird. It's the butterfly effect, right? If you go back in time, it's like don't touch anything because you. Do, I mean, truly, exactly. truly, what if what if the, the special activities division of the CIA, what if they had landed 10 minutes earlier at the Bay of Pigs and it was a success? Would we have gone to the moon? Like it's it, it makes your mind. If you can't tell, I get excited about this stuff, but it makes your mind spin. Right. It makes your mind right. spin. Spin. It's it's and, do you know, I, I would assume, you know, about Project Orion the nuclear-powered uh, space, oh, yes. right? The bombs and the ju-ju-ju-ju. Well, Kennedy, Kennedy actually was a little turned off by that, not because of the... It's still a brilliant idea, but because apparently the Joint Chiefs of Staff also floated an idea of, well, instead of having one of these go out to Mars, what if we had one orbit the Earth? And what if, instead of dropping bombs as a propulsion... What if it dropped bombs on target? An orbital nuclear battleship. And Kennedy was wildly turned off by that. I mean, you got to think, would he, would he have nixed the entire Apollo program had he lived and not gone to Dallas? Because maybe he would have started seeing this all as, is this going to turn into another military race? Granted, that's all speculation, but... Yeah, well, that's, that, that's, uh, that's an interesting story, and in in the uh, in the early days of the or after the war, there was a lot of thought uh, 
and effort put over to the idea of uh, nuclear fueled rockets. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and I think if you if, if you talk to kind of your um, say leader of military technology in the late forties, especially. Uh, um, you would have heard a lot of talk about uh, nuclear-powered rockets and nuclear-powered aircraft and things like that. Uh, and that that was actually, I think, one of the reasons why uh, uh, there was a bit of a, a delay in getting ICBMs going because because people were thinking uh, a large chemical rocket may, may not necessarily be the way to go. And, and even as late as the time of Kennedy, there was still a, a lot of interest in that. For example, if you read the speech he gave where he announced uh, the power, you know, his idea to go to the moon, set that goal in uh, uh, 1961, uh, he also talks about funding support for something called Project Rover, which was actually a, a, a nuclear rocket, which, which was kind of seen as... Uh, you know, something a bit more distant than Apollo, but, uh, uh, you know, perhaps perhaps a way to get to Mars or, or, or for, um, you know, other space exploration and perhaps military purposes. But, yeah, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the nuclear uh, programs were actually ultimately killed uh, sort of uh, later on in Kennedy's term and... and and under President Johnson, I think it's yeah. You had the you had NEPA, right? It was that nuclear powered B thirty six, and the Soviets had their version. And in that true Soviet fashion, they just took off the shielding. Why not? Who cares if the pilots die? That <laughs> you know that kind of Soviet mindset. But it's yeah. It's it's sort it's kind of Occam's razor, right? You know how complex is this thing? How well trained is the crew going to need to be? Is every one of these a flying liability? If it crashes, is there nuclear waste? Versus, if we can get some, if we can get some solid fueled rockets or at least hypergolic fluids, if we can just have these things ready to go, you know, it's you can't. You have to think of your average soldier in the field. It's like your average guy in Normandy or the Battle of the Bulge. It's like they got to be able to take the gun like clear it aim it and fire like it's got to be ready to go you maybe don't want to have these highly trained crews for every plane when you could just loosely you know light the rocket and let it go it's i'm glad you touched on project pluto because not a lot of people do and it's one of my favorite historical aspects of the cold war that i don't think gets nearly enough attention and for everybody listening it's a nuclear powered ramjet that they the biggest model they made I think was a 50 megawatt but they wanted it to be 500 megawatts it could fly for months on end in a holding pattern it held multiple thermonuclear bombs and when it was aimed at let's say the Soviet Union it would fly along dropping bombs at each target all the while flying at treetop at Mach 3 and it had the same mass as a diesel locomotive shockwave killing people breaking infrastructure spewing radioactive exhaust and then dropping nukes on cities and then finally in its final act after months of flying around at treetop level it could then act as a kamikaze and go right into a final target and basically create a chernobyl that's all real that i'm sure i probably exaggerated a little bit but you touched on it and i'm glad you did because i I can't find any any other authors that do there are documentaries about it but there aren't any good books about it, and I'm glad you touched on it. The 1950s were uh, <laughs> really the, the salad days for, you know, ex- experimental yeah. ideas, you know, uh, in military technology. You know, you think of, uh, uh, well, things like just what, what you spoke about, the, these various nuclear weapons, nuclear rockets, different aircraft um concepts you, you know the x series of aircraft mm-hmm. all sorts of weird and wonderful things yeah you know there there would be money for it yeah. you know for, for about a decade and then then that kind of ended but you know of course things like the flying flapjack and uh, all these all these uh, amazing things and uh, uh, 
it, it must have been fun to be a test pilot in those days. And uh, yeah. of course, a lot of the, a, lot, a lot of those people wound up uh, becoming astronauts. But, yeah. uh, well, um, I don't think it's it's the same now. No, it's it's not. One of the guests I've had on here, Charlie Duke, tenth man to walk on the moon. Right. He he talked about because I remember asking him. I was like how did you become an astronaut? Because I never really thought about it, but I was like, astronauts didn't exist. So when you're a little kid, I want to be a firefighter. I want to be a baseball player. There were no astronauts for you to look up to. And what he said is there was no end goal to become an astronaut. You were just kind of looking for the most advanced bleeding edge thing. You were just kind of chasing that high, faster planes. Are you a Chucky Yeager breaking the sound barrier? And he brought up, I don't believe he was an X-15 pilot, but he brought up the X-15. And he was like, you have the X-15, and it's flying at 300,000 feet. And it's yeah. one thing led to another. And then finally it was like, we're going to go to the moon. And it was just like, let's go to the moon. Of course you want to be that guy. Who doesn't? If you're in the Air Force, who doesn't want to be at the most bleeding edge? Go walk on another celestial body. It's That's right. Um, yeah, because a lot of them were just... Pilots. They were just really pilots on uh-huh. steroids, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. Well, there were two X-15 pilots who became uh, mm-hmm. astronauts. Some X-15 uh, folks got astronaut wings because the X-15 went so high. But yeah. uh, uh, the two who joined NASA were, of course, uh, Neil Armstrong, who you may have heard of, and yeah. uh, and Joe Engel, yeah. who uh, he was supposed to fly in Apollo, but he got bounced and wound up flying in the shuttle. And he's he's still around. Yeah. It's... Um, so, uh, but yeah, Neil Armstrong. Uh, I never met him, but uh, everybody who does said he, he just he just uh, he just loved flying anything, you know, anything he could uh, get off the ground. Yeah. And that was, you know, the the most important part of Apollo uh, eleven for him was making sure it uh, was getting that landing right. Yeah, yeah. He, he, that was uh, yeah. That was far more important to him than, than uh, what he said when he you know stepped down on the surface. Yeah, he's a pilot. He doesn't he doesn't care about walking on the ground. It's That's just, right. Yeah, he wanted right. to. Right. Yeah, he he uh, even when he kind of left the business, I think he kept flying. He was a glider pilot, and I think you know. If he could get his hands on a business jet or something like that, away you go, you know. So, what's interesting is uh, uh, Charlie Duke was the guy talking to Neil. At That's the, right. When you hear those old recordings, you know, Houston, you know, the Eagle has landed. Oh, you got a bunch of guys down here holding or turning blue, holding their breath. That's Charlie Duke. In a weird kind of fun fact twist for Project Pluto, what, we just, what we've been talking about. One of the one of the companies contracted for Project Pluto was actually Coors, the beer company, because they created the little uh, the fuel rods. They created the ceramics. Right. Charlie Duke actually went and worked for Coors for a little bit after. Yes, that. he was uh, he was a distributor yeah. I think, for a while. Yeah. And he made some good money doing it. I yeah. think. Yeah, it's it, it's it's all it's kind of this like weird kind of incestuous. The channels um yeah there there is it's kind of a romantic thing to look back at that time i mean one you have the funding to do anything much like in the wake of 9-11 it's anything you can come up with there's a fight terrorism funded don't say no more it's funded whatever you want but there was also that sort of that i guess really true awe at the final frontier it was no one knew what happened when you broke the sound barrier yeah the x-15 went over the carmen line you're an astronaut now we're gonna launch you off uh we're gonna launch you off a b-52 we don't know if you're gonna melt or not we go to mach 7 let's see what happens to can we get to space can we survive space can we go to the moon there was very much we can look back at it now we know it all and we were looking back at it with knowledge of the events that happened but at the time, it really was just this, it was just this black wall, this event horizon of no one knew what was going to come next. And these guys were just wheeling and dealing. It was like a very, almost a Wild West kind of vibe, right? It's, do you think we will get back to that? 
do you think that or do, are we back there already with Blue Origin and SpaceX? Are we kind of getting back into that that those glory days of, you know, the future? Everyone will live in the space and run on nuclear power. Are we getting back to that maybe? I'm I'm not sure if, if if we're getting back to say where we were at in the 50s and 60s, but uh, we're I think we're kind of moving out of a, a period of uh, spaces, shall we say? Yeah. Um, you know, because you have the you know for a long time space exploration was just kind of uh, supported entirely by the government. And um, you know, and after after uh, Apollo Eleven, uh, the governments, regardless of the political strength, listened to all those people who said, "Hey, we have these problems here on Earth. Let's deal with them." And, uh, and, and but now we actually have uh, you know private entities, billionaires, and corporations that are actually have some of their own skin in the game. Uh, and uh, now they're still getting a lot of government support. Yeah, contracts. Uh, you know, uh, NASA. NASA is changing its role from kind of directing uh, everything to being more like the anchor tenant. Yeah, you know. For, uh, but you know, uh, in, in a few months we're going, we're going to see uh, we're going to see some launches of, of dragons that uh, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, are uh, really have nothing to do with NASA. What is it? They're sending up five five people that that some and you know some uh, multi millionaires paying the freight. You yeah, know, yeah, stuff like that. So uh, and you know, uh, Elon Musk says we want to go to Mars. So uh, we are getting into uh, I think a bit more dynamic phase. Whether it'll be as exciting as it was. Uh, 50, 60 years ago uh, remains to be seen, but it's certainly going in that direction. Yeah, it, it's you, you well said. We're coming out of a, a, a an, an era of stagnation, and it's still very government supported. If you, if maybe indirectly, but I mean, SpaceX also makes a killing off you know NRO contracts, putting satellites up there, but. And as you said, yeah, NASA less of less of the overlord, and now more sort of the maybe just directing traffic in, and I don't say that in any negative way. Sort of, yeah, the anchor right. tenant. It's, but no matter why we get there or how we get there, I think it's important that we get there. Whether it's whether it's some morally questionable bringing back some Nazi scientists to the United States. Whether it's putting up a space shuttle or whether it's launching satellites or whether it's putting millionaires around the moon for a a nice vacation or whether it's going to Mars, no matter how it happens or why it happens or whether it's, you know, Starlink, satellite internet or mining asteroids or learning how to develop or to deliver nuclear weapons to, to thousands of miles away. What is happening with all of those over the decades, no matter the country, no matter the corporation, is it's slowly refining and improving the reliability and efficacy that we can get to space. And I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah, it's... And, uh, uh... You know, some of, some of the, uh, some of the people who are, uh, in the forefront of this, this movement, you know, like Jeff Bezos and, uh, and Elon Musk and, and even, even some people who've been around NASA were inspired in the 1970s by, uh, uh, Gerard O'Neill and, uh, his ideas of, of colonies in space. Um, you know, I'm not sure if that, that's all going to work out, but, uh, or at least, in, in, in the short term or, or intermediate term, but but uh, but it is having a, an effect on on people's ideas today. So uh, uh, so that's uh, that, that's that's an interesting thing. There's, I think 
very recently, uh, just a, a few weeks ago, I started a new film out about O'Neill and his work. So people are starting to talk about that uh, again. He was quite big in the 70s, but of course he passed away in the 90s, so, uh, so it's kind of forgotten a little bit. You know, I I, th- I was just thinking, there's kind of, right now when you see Bezos and and Musk, Musk is sort of the the hot, the Joker, the high and wild kind of all everything out of the table. Bezos is more of like the poker player. It almost is perfectly fitting that we have these two personalities because history, especially of space flight and things related to it, are also these big personalities, right? Yeah, Edward Teller, who apparently it was like working with a petulant child, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, physician, patriotic American, wanted to fight communism, but was always, no, we are working on this, nothing else. You know, he met with Ulam and they, the teller Ulam, and then Ulam said he never spoke to him, teller never spoke to him again. You know, he testified against Oppenheimer. We have all these, these big, they have Curtis LeMay, just, you know, the cigar yeah. chomp, you know, the, you know, we don't need missiles, we need bombers. And it's, you have these big egos sort of, bucking at each other but it almost i would say it's almost par for the course right we got elon musk and bezos and it's like yeah this makes sense this is how it's supposed to be for better or worse it seems to be this is how it goes well yes and teller and lemay are big characters in in, in my book here you mm-hmm. know uh, uh uh you know far be it for me to <laughs> i i mean you know, Curtis LeMay isn't the, the, the world's most attractive character, but um, um, but uh, his, uh, you know, I I more or less say that uh, that his skepticism about missiles in the early days was perhaps a little better founded than uh, than than people gave him credit for, uh, and. Uh, um, it, it, it would be inter- interesting to do kind of more research on on his his attitude, say during the time he was uh, chief of staff mm-hmm. of the Air Force, which by then missiles were coming in, into their own. Yeah. But uh, but earlier on, uh, he he was he he was really pushing pushing the bombers. But you know, as as, as I said in the book, uh, uh, they were they were having trouble. Uh, you know, making making bomb, bombers uh, an effective uh, delivery system for nuclear weapons, let alone missiles. So I think I think it's a bit more understandable mm-hmm. than, uh, than than some people say his attitude on that. Oh no, I'm I'm a I'm a huge fan of, of Curtis LeMay. I always talk about him on this podcast. Sure, he had his drawbacks, but it's kind of like what Kennedy said: you you don't want LeMay deciding whether or not you go to war but if you are going to war you want LeMay leading the fight right it's like (laughs) kind of like Patton you want like a more measured Eisenhower but if you are going to war and you're fighting the Nazis it's like take the leash off Patton just let him run wild but it's yeah, and, and he was he was a very effective organizer, you know. Uh, when, oh, yeah. when he was put in charge of the strategic air command, oh my god, he cleaned it all up. It's like what you you, yeah. you quoted Richard Rhodes, and I, I love Richard Rhodes. And you know, Dark Sun, not one bomber completed the mission, not one. Lemay went from place to place, right? The bombers going over at fifteen hundred feet instead of at thirty thousand. Lemay was, we are at war. So when that war comes, it's no different. It's the same. He went from base to base, starting at Offutt, went through the whole thing and cleaned it up and organized it. I mean, you got to give credit where credit's due. The guy was an animal. And I say that in the best way. And you could almost, as as uh, Richard Rhodes talks about in, the, in Dark Sun, the making of the hydrogen bomb, well, first of all, back to what you said very early in this podcast, I have—I mean, it was probably not until about two years ago, I'm 30 years old now, that I realized hydrogen bombs were not just a bigger A-bomb. It wasn't, 
you know, an SUV and then you have a city bus, which is bigger than an SUV. But it's no, like the hydrogen bomb was more like a cruise ship. It, it was an entirely different thing. And what, what dawned on me was if you ever look at tests of A-bombs somewhere in the ocean, but just one big indicator is, is you can always look at the surroundings, right? Desert, uh, Nevada, and you got the mountains and you can kind of see some stuff in the foreground. Every hydrogen bomb test, it's this much more abstract, just general area of the sky, and in the foreground are clouds. And you'll look at the difference in the A-bomb, the flash goes and then it dissipates and you see the mushroom cloud rising. The hydrogen bomb, the entire sky is red as this thing just rises. Not really at all similar. So just, yeah to what you were saying earlier but to finish up this rambling what Richard Rhodes said is when when Teller met with Ulam at first he was very very skeptical and then as it's like as 10 minutes went by 20 minutes went by he became accepting and then very enthusiastic about it you could you could maybe argue and you would know better than me you could maybe argue that LeMay was the same with missiles because when we look at his how rabid he was about getting the XB-70, the supersonic bomber, which is basically the SR-71, but as a bomber. You, you could almost say that that was probably the beginning of his love for what? A super fast delivery system that had a low rate of interception from the enemy. That's almost, I would say, laid the ground for him to... Pro- I would imagine, it's, granted it's all speculation, I would imagine that's probably there's the beginning steps to him accepting the missile as, oh, this is just the most superior delivery system. Would you say that there's any, any accuracy to that, or am, am I just rambling? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think there's, there's something to be said about that, but uh, I, 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 I don't... Uh, um, I'm, not, I'm not that well informed about sort of... Uh, what, what what he was saying at that that point in his career because mm-hmm. I I was concentrating on uh, the earlier time before he became chief of staff. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, but that's that's actually a good question, and I I think it should be researched a little bit more. Yeah, it's I hadn't thought about it until we were talking. I've got you I've got you for ten more minutes, so I also wanted to kind of pivot again, just like Project Pluto you bring up something else that never really gets brought up that I was a huge fan of and it's the silver vogel which so we have the space shuttle the space shuttle was was preceded by the theoretical x20 dinosaur which itself was preceded by the what was it the the antipodal bomber the the german antipodal bomber yes yeah, sanger did. yeah he wanted a Basically, it was like a weird mix of like a 1940s theoretical hybrid between a space shuttle and ICBM. But the the similarities were all there. Take off from the ground, use rockets to get really high up, use the atmosphere to bounce, and then it would drop a nuke on New York, and then it would land in Japanese-controlled islands in the Pacific. It's it's very early. It's a very early early concept of a space shuttle and sort of a an ICBM, but no one ever brings it up. And I don't know why. And I'm, I'm so happy you did. Cause to me, it's the most absurd thing that they were planning this in the forties. Well, uh, there's all sorts of things. Uh, I also mentioned this, this, you know, when they're having problems with the guidance system, they actually researched the idea of putting pigeons in the, in the nose cone of the rockets and, and having the pigeons direct the, yeah. uh, the uh, missile to the target. So, uh, yes, they tried all sorts of things. Yeah, it's it is absurd, but it, it's it's also you also go into some more interesting, more meta themes of the Cold War, and perhaps the differences between the United States and a closed society as the Soviet Union was the actual use of the of the paperclip scientists. I mean, you can go, granted, I am biased. I'm an American and I love America, but you can see where we went in and what did we do? We grabbed the Nazis and we promised them freedom, a uh, good life, which 
did they deserve? Probably not. Versus the Soviets got them really drunk and then threw them on the trains. We brought them and kind of extracted the information from their mind, worked with them, again, question, ethically questionable, questionable. Whereas the Soviets took them and kind of compartmentalized them and didn't really let them in to the inner circles. Now, is that some Soviet punishment for the losses inflicted by the Third Reich on them? Who knows? Or was it just a reflection of their society of, of you don't, you don't let everyone intermix. You keep it compartmentalized. You keep it uh, separated. Well, um, I, I think I think it's both. But you got to remember that uh, the, uh, the the Germans invaded the, the Soviet Union, and uh, the, the Soviets took twenty million casualties. Yeah. Um, and the, the Germans, uh, the way the, the way the Germans dealt uh, with the uh, the Soviet people uh, during the occupation is, is a, a really dark chapter of the war. Mm. Uh, they just considered them subhuman. They were only slightly better than Jews in, in their eyes, and. Uh, they were treated very badly, and uh, you know a lot of a lot of people, uh, you know, looking back on that, you know, realize, you know, say, why well, the Germans were really kooky to do that because, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the Soviet people, you know, especially in the Ukraine, you know, they they uh, occupied the whole of Ukraine, and uh, they those people weren't exactly in love with uh, with the Soviets, because the, you know he basically forced a famine on them in the 1930s, and he would have happily worked with them. But then the Germans came in; they were greeted as liberators by many of those people, and then then they quickly found out that the Germans were treating them worse. So, so there, so there, there were some, you know, hatreds going on there, and. Uh, you know, so, you know, in, in the United States and, you know, other countries, you know, we all remember the Second World War, but nothing like the Soviets because, uh, because they, uh, they occupied a, um, they occupied a big chunk of that country and a lot of people died and, uh, and, uh, a lot of people who didn't die uh, suffered greatly. So yeah. I think that's, that has to be considered. Yeah, it that doesn't get brought up a lot in the history of World War Two. And the more you look into it, the more similar you you see the United States and the Soviet Union as as like bodies. I mean, why didn't we want to give up why did we hold on to Okinawa? Why did we hold on to all these bases after World War Two? And a lot of senators and congressmen and women openly said these were bought and paid for with American lives. Why are we giving them up? Well, right. you could argue the same with the Soviets. Why, why did, was it when Richard Bissell went and met with, I think it was him, went and met, went and met with, with uh, Stalin about how much, when asked him after the war, how much further is the Soviet Union going to go? And Stalin said not much further. But the reason he didn't want to give up all of their sort of holdings, if you will, much like the Iwo Jima was our holding, was they, they, they paid for it in, in a level of human life that we didn't even come close to. And I'm not, you know, the living under a Soviet satellite block nation was a horrible fate, and I'm not trying to lighten that anyway. But to at least put myself in the mind of Stalin, if I can, is... Yeah, I mean, they just paid for it with these unimaginable losses... And the Americans paid with it with a fraction of our losses, and they are openly talking about keeping their bases. Why would we give up ours? Why wouldn't we? Dev why wouldn't we get some of the spoils of war? Why wouldn't you? You, you? You took on so many losses. Why wouldn't you? And it's, yeah, the 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 Soviet losses were absolutely unimaginable, and it's very easy for us to say, America, we won World War Two, and it's like, dude. Like, the Soviets kind of got us to the goal line. 
we ran in the touchdown, but you can't discount their 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 efforts, their participation. And now now we're just now we're not even touching on anything sim- anything remotely close to your book with with nuclear weapons and missiles. We're diving off in a into occupations, but um, the book. One more time, everybody. It's on Audible. The Bomb in America's Missile Age. It's a fantastic listen. Some fun things in there, and it's it's also in uh, in hardback too, of course. Oh, yeah. from, uh, awesome. John Hopkins University Press. Beautiful. I will put that in in the description as always. Um, some fun facts, real quick. Um, I always knew that McNamara was the was the CEO of Ford. And, yes, and he was. I always, yeah, I always knew that factoid that he was brought on as the Secretary of Defense. I didn't know that uh, one of the missile programs was headed by a guy plucked from Chrysler, and you talked about that. And it's that's right. Well, and 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 one of Eisenhower's uh, defense secretaries, I think, did a big shot at General Motors or something <laughs> like that. And and uh, yeah. Is the yeah the the little known the little known headhunting of the industrial co- military industrial complex from like Detroit right <laughs> just going and getting yes it. that's yeah. that's right um, yeah I talk about a, a fellow named KT Keller mm-hmm. who's a guy who ran Chrysler after Chrysler yeah uh, himself left the scene and uh, you know he. He's, he started uh, ramping up the missile program a little bit, although it actually did. And this this was under President Truman, but it really didn't get going in, in, until uh, Eisenhower got in and, and the uh, hydrogen bomb uh, had been developed. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. That's that's an and yes, there, and Eisenhower, uh, if my memory serves me right, he had. Uh, um, uh, he had a former head of GM named Charlie Wilson, and also, uh, also the former head of GE, who's was also named Charlie Wilson. <laughs> so one was called, you know, uh, Engine Charlie, and the other was called Electric Charlie. I think that's that's how they distinguished them. <laughs> it's it's yeah, it's man, that could be a cool book in itself. The unknown, I guess the unknown role that the, the automobile industry played in a cold war military industrial complex. Um, in, in Wasgans, one thing you said, yeah, uh, about Keller, he had, they had one of the programs had a catchy name. It was, it was like the Keller accelerated program or a yes. Keller Acceler or whatever it was. I thought it was interesting. That, that, that's what Bon Brown called it. Oh, okay. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, yes, Keller, uh, Keller kind of helped uh, Von Braun going get going because he, he, he in, in the first few years after the war he, he he was kind of in the wilderness in a sense. Yeah, uh, they were launching V twos and then yeah. then they got this kind of modest program that led to the Redstone. But uh, but uh, Keller came in and knocked some heads together yeah. and, and uh, helped get it going. Oh. I guess it makes sense. I guess it makes if we can. I know I said we'd finish up if we can go for a couple more minutes. I guess it makes sense though, right? Because you're bringing in the the heads of these private industries who rose to their positions through through skill, through competency, unless there was some nepotism, but I don't think it was. So what? So let's break it down into its its base pieces. What is it? It's these super efficient businessmen who knew how to streamline a process much like LeMay with Strategic Air Command. So whereas you have these sort of geniuses like a, like a Von Braun, it's you're sort of rudderless. It came over after the war. There's no real goal. It's like, hey, here are, we brought back pieces of V2 rockets. Some of them got damaged by like seawater, so they're corroded. But it's just kind of in general like firing off rockets and versus you kind of bring in this, this business mind and you put a goal on the horizon. And it's now let's like you said let's let's bash some heads together and let's get it going and yeah I mean kind of like kind of like pilots taking that taking that opportunity to go to the moon even though it it seems very different from flying planes it's like it's the ultimate rung of achievement I guess it makes sense that maybe that's why McNamara or Keller maybe that's why they came on. Because it's like they rose to the top of their industry, 
and like now they want to go to the Olympics and it was what the what's the Olympics it's like working on a classified program for the president for missiles I mean maybe right Rex Tillerson being secretary of state I mean maybe it there seems to be a precedent of it right I don't know for better or worse yeah, yes uh, yes in a sense maybe not for secretary of state but uh, yeah but in, a, in a general sense that, <laughs> yeah yeah maybe not the best example secretary well, of state. Yeah. Actually, actually you know uh Come to think of it, um, uh, when FDR was president, uh, you know, most of the time the Secretary of State was a guy named Cordell Hull. And although, to tell the truth, you know, uh, Roosevelt was one of these people who was his own Secretary of State. But right at the end, Cordell Hull was replaced by a guy named Edward Statinius, uh, who continued for a few months into Truman's time. And I believe he was he used to be the head of U.S. Steel. Hmm. Uh, so uh, so anyway, there there is there is that precedent there. Yeah. Of course, McNamara is a fascinating character. Uh, you know, people uh, people go on a great deal about him in, in Vietnam as they should, but uh, the way he handled the uh, technology uh, fascinating. Was, it's a big, big thing, you know, the F thirty five and things like that. Yeah. Um, uh, which is, you know, an attempt to make a one size fits all for the various forces, and uh, that's, <laughs> you know, that's that's quite a story in and of itself. Yeah, a trillion dollar boondoggle. Yeah, no, McNamara, right? They were using electronics to drop on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. He was. It seems like McNamara, McNamara maybe would have been better suited at like DARPA. Seemed like yeah. he was looking really far ahead. That, but yeah, I mean, he canceled things like uh, like dinosaur and all this. I know. And, I I don't think I can ever forgive. Some him. people called him Mac the Knife. So yeah, there you I know. Go. I don't know if I, I can ever forgive McNamara for canceling dinosaur and the XB seventy. Those are some. Oh, those are easier, right? It's easy for me to say in twenty twenty one. I'm not the Secretary of Defense. Um, real quick and um. I hadn't thought of, I hadn't made the connection till just now when when you were mentioning those other business leaders. Um, in Garrett Graff's book Raven Rock, it's a, it's a fantastic book. It's all about the nuclear bunkers. It's a, a, it was classified for a long time, but Eisenhower had something called the Czar system, which we we have Czars now. But his Czar system was he had these like twelve czars from all aspects of private industry in the United States. It's like manufacturing, it's like agriculture, uh, construction, just kind of a very broad, if you could get the most 12 encompassing areas. And he kind of took the top guys, like CEOs, presidents, and he established the czar system. And what the czar system was these guys were given priority to be saved in the event of a nuclear war. Them and their families were given the same security like clearances as top generals because Eisenhower wanted these guys to rebuild America after an all-out nuclear strike. And it would be a greatly consolidated power source that probably would have been martial law for a couple decades. But Eisenhower, ever the ever the the logistic logistician magician it's he he wanted to take in these private leaders as as a vital as an essential asset to save in the event of a nuclear holocaust because who could better rebuild a society with less than favorable circumstances how could they use it most efficiently figured why not these guys already did it in the real world why not bring them back in when everything's in a radiated wasteland it's yeah there seems to be a very weird an underbelly not an underbelly because that's a negative word but yeah there does seem to be a precedent of like you, you pluck the top minds and then they come work for you i don't know what, what i'm talking about now i'm going off but um dr gainer thank you so much for coming on my podcast sir would love to chat with you again sometime and again, your book will be in the description. It's a fantastic listen. There are fun facts in there that I hadn't known about. I didn't know that some B-29s crash landed in the Soviet Union and Stalin refused to give them back to us. That's I, right. I never knew that. Do you want, do you want the, do you want it to be in English or in Cyrillic or, you know, do you want it? That's how similar. The, I never knew that. They reverse engineered our B-29s. 
That's right. Yep. Fantastic. Fantastic book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I haven't recommended a bad book yet, or at least no one's told me I have. I don't think this is going to be the one that, that breaks that pattern. Dr. Gainer, thank you so much, sir. I'll email you when this episode is up. Guys, go grab the book on Audible or a real paperback copy. And I'll send you the link when it's up. I would love to talk to you again. Now I'm just rambling. I'm a huge fan. Thank you, sir. Your book is fantastic. Touched on all the subjects I love. And for anybody that's a fan of this stuff, it's a book you need to get. So with that, I will let you go. I have kept you seven minutes longer than I said I would. So Dr. Gaynor, thank you for your patience, sir. Thank you for coming on my podcast. And uh, I hope to talk to you again sometime. My pleasure. All right. Thank you, sir. You have a good one. You too. Bye-bye.